I'd like to invite you to open up your Bibles to Philippians 2, or you can open it up in your worship guide. Uh, And so just as uh, John mentioned, or just uh, in his prayer, um, my sabbatical starts this week. And so this is a passage from Philippians 2, uh, really chosen for a few reasons. Uh, we have our uh, church meeting after worship, and it's connected to that but in, for, in one way. But it's also connected to the, my sabbatical. This is a passage that Paul writes to the church in Philippians, and he's, at, he's striving that the church would continue to grow in his absence. He says, you are working out your salvation in my presence, but while I am absent from you, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. And the way that God is working in our lives, the way that God is working in the church and building his church is really seen for us in this passage through specifically humility. And so this is Philippians 2, verses 1 through 13. I'm reading from the English Standard Version this morning, and you can follow along on the wall behind me or in uh, your own Bibles or in the worship guide. Let's listen to God's dear word that he has given to us in love. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy completes my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceits, but in humility count, yourself, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, did not, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only... Not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Friends, let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for your good word that is given to us. But it is not just a good word. It is your beautiful word. We see your love, we see your grace, we see your pursuit of us here in this passage. And so, Father, we pray that you be with us now, that we would clearly see your love for us and how your love shapes our life. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Recently, a reader wrote to the New York Times asking for advice. So it's the advice column. And here is... The the setting, the story, and the question. My husband loves to travel and always either pays for or gets an upgrade into the first class cabin. When we travel together with our children, he buys himself a ticket in first class and puts us in economy or economy plus. 
There's some chuckles there. So he's in first class, and his, other, his family's in economy or economy plus. He even did this recently on an overnight flight to Paris. He justifies flying alone in first class because of the cost and the fact that our kids, who are 12 and 16, might feel alone, feel alone, if I were to travel in first class with him and leave them alone in the rear. I feel that this is unfair. I don't think our kids would mind if they were alone in Economy Plus and I was with my husband in first class. Is this unfair? My husband has even suggested traveling alone on a different flight ahead of us so that we do not feel badly about the disparity. (laughs) But this does not really address or solve the problem of the inherent selfishness in his thinking. There's chuckles. And so you may wonder, am I reading satire or comedy? This is literally the advice column. At least this is what Facebook tells me. <laughs> so it's there, it's on social media, and in one of the commenters under the story, another reader responded, that, responded this way, that these type of people exist to help us feel good about ourselves. <laughs> and so here is a, a reader pointing out that this man who is selfish, and this is selfishness, let's be very clear, that this man, who, the selfish man is the bar, that this selfish man is the standard, and that's the standard that we have to meet. But to be very clear, this is a very low standard. And the passage of Philippians 2 actually corrects us, that this man's not the bar or standard that we have to meet, the standard, the bar that's actually given to us as an example is Jesus Christ. And his bar is not low, it is actually very high. It's because this is what the words of Philippians say. It says something very different, that here's Jesus in his humility. This is the example, the standard that we are called to meet, that we are called to humility, And humility for the Christian, it is so important that you cannot follow Jesus Christ without humility. That this is something that we need to learn, not from ourselves, not even from one another, but this is something that we need to learn from the example of Jesus Christ himself. And it is hard to learn. It is a hard to learn Humility. It is a challenge to be humble. In fact, it is so hard and it is so challenging, it feels like death because you are truly dying to yourself. You're setting aside your own ego, you're setting aside your own priorities, you are actually putting yourself aside in many ways in order to become and to grow in humility. And the wonderful truth. The wonderful gift of God's grace is that this is actually possible for us as we are united in Christ. Because we are truly united in Christ. And God's power is seen, in fact, in our weakness. That God's greatness is seen in our weakness. That his power, his glory, his beauty is seen actually in our humility. And so here's this passage as we be- begin to look at it, just wanna, first I just want to highlight how significant humility is in our life as Christians. In the first few verses here, verses 1, 2, 3, 4, as we, actually verses 1 2, as we begin to look at this passage, just look at how significant it is. That if there's any encouragement in Christ, 
So if you're encouraged by Christ in any way, if there's any comfort from love, if you are participating in the Spirit, if you are in step with the Spirit, if you have any affection for one another, if you have any sympathy for one another, what does Paul say? Complete my joy. In fact, our joy is even completed by having humility. But in humility. See, that humility here is essential to our walk with God. Humility is, in fact, the pathway to unity and oneness in the church. It's the pathway to joy. And it is demonstrating that we are truly in step with the Spirit, that we are encouraged by Christ, that we are united in love, that we have sympathy and affection for one another. That humility is really the proof that we are followers of Jesus Christ. And so what Paul is telling us here is that here's Jesus Christ. He is the embodiment of humility. But we also learn something. We learn that the world hated humility and killed him upon the cross. And so as we think about this passage, we, have this, we see how it's so significant for us. But one of the things that we also learn about humility is that humility is becoming small. Humility is becoming small. And we see this in, beginning in verse 6, that though Jesus was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So here's Paul, what he is doing to help us learn about humility. He actually points us to Jesus Christ. That here is Jesus, who is none other than God the Son. That here is God the Son. He is the maker of all things. That he made Mount Everest. He made the Grand Canyon. He made the Crabshoe Nebula. The white sandy beaches. The clear waters. The constellations. He made you. He made me. He made everything in this world. He is the creator. But Jesus did not insist on his status. He did not insist on equality with God. He didn't see his, this status of creator, something to hold on to when we are on this roadway, this highway to damnation. That Jesus instead put that aside. He did not hold on to his crown. He did not hold on his status. He actually, in the words of Hebrews, he, for the joy that was set before him, in other words, Jesus gladly put that aside for you and I. But let's not misunderstand this passage because Jesus, when we read this verse of that he emptied himself, Jesus never stopped being fully God. He did not empty himself of his divinity. He did not empty himself of his power. Here we are being told that the creator became a part of the creation. That our creator became a part of his creation. But when you think about this, he was not born into a wealthy family. He was actually born into a poor family. That his parents only had two pigeons when they dedicated their son at the temple. It was, they, they could not even afford a lamb in Jesus' dedication. That Jesus was not from a great city. He's from Nazareth. That his own disciples, when they were talking about Nazareth one time, and 
One of the disciples said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? That in fact, Jesus was born in a backwater town. He grew up in a backwater region. He was born in a stable. And then he went on, his, on, a run, on the run for his life from King Herod. His own town, same town in Nazareth, rejected him. And we read that this, a prophet is without honor even in his own town, hometown. And so here we have this picture that the creator becomes a part of the creation. But why? But why? That we read from this passage that he became obedient, obedient to the point of death, a death on a cross. And so as we understand the cross within scripture, that we know this very clearly, that Jesus, the creator, became part of the creation in order to serve you. One writer wrote this, that the, the creator of the moon and stars stoops down to you to wash your tired, weary, demoralized feet. This is the example of our Savior. He humbled himself, that he set aside his own human will and submitted to God's will. And you see this in the prayer of Gethsemane. Not my will be done, but your will. And so what we see with humility, that humility is actually becoming small. Humility is becoming small in order to serve you. And this is what Jesus did over and over and over again. His entire life is marked by becoming small in order that you would be served. So even this is getting at this idea that this is hard to learn. Because once Jesus' disciples were debating, who among us is the greatest? Just imagine that conversation and how that might go. Who among us is greatest? And so Jesus goes on to tell them that if any of you are going to be first, if any of you are going to be the greatest, what's he say? That they must be last and they must be the servants of all. Truly, unless you become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And here's Jesus drawing our attention to children here. And children are, in the ancient world, like the bottom of the social order. They had no power, no agency. They were just mouths to feed and diapers to change. That's all whom children were. They were a nuisance. Very different from how it should be very different than how we think about them. It's very different how God thinks about children. And so because here's God, Jesus, saying to us, we need to become like children. And so the first shall be last. The last shall be first. And so this is the idea that humility is becoming small. And so what Paul is telling us here, is this is something we need to embrace. Look at here, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. That here we are actually called to become small in order to serve one another. But this is a hard thing. This is a challenge. So there's a challenge here. So if humility is becoming small, there's a challenge, and it's the challenge of pride. Because what, where we are within our sinful natures is that we don't like to become small. We actually want to become big. We want to be seen as impressive. We want to insist on things our own ways. We want to insist on first class while everyone else is in economy. Have you ever seen a picture of a Saturn V rocket? 
Perhaps you've gone to a museum, perhaps you've seen them, but a Saturn V rocket, it's one of the rockets that were used in the 60s and the 70s to launch astronauts to space to go to the moon or launch the Skylab space station. Each rocket, each one of these rockets is over 100 meters long. So it's the size of a football field. That's how big it is. And so in the design, the engineering design of this rocket, there would be three stages, three separate rockets, and then you would come to the actual capsule for the lunar command capsule and and lander. And so as you have the first, the second, and the third set of rockets, that would actually comprise over 80% of the Saturn V rocket. The actual lunar command capsule, the lunar rover, is only 53 feet of this thing that is over 360 feet long. Here's some space engineering design theory for you, but the whole point of this and the whole idea of how big that Saturn V rocket is is that it shows us that Earth's gravity is hard to escape. The gravity of our ego is hard to escape. The gravity of our selfishness is hard to escape. See, sin is like gravity that pulls us in our every moment of every single day of our life, that we are drawn to our own selfishness, that sin has this inward pull, that if you pull, if you would draw a straight line, sin would actually curve that into a U. It would be a, a, yeah, a horseshoe. And so sin within our life is why humility is a challenge for us. Because humility threatens our ego, threatens our pride. Because humility threatens every single thing that we sinfully build our life on. That's, humility threatens our resume virtues. That humility threatens our wants and our preferences. It threatens everything. In fact, when the first sin came into the world, think about Genesis 3 here. When the first sin came into the world, here's Adam. Adam knows what he did was wrong. He's hiding from God. But when God comes to speak to him, Adam actually insists that he's not the problem. He insists that this woman whom you gave me is the problem. Think about, the, think about your own life. Think about how you display a selfish attitude. How do you say, I need to be first here? Me first. I deserve blank. So it could be at the end of a day, you need to, and you think to yourself, I need some alone time. I deserve a break. I deserve to be waited on. I deserve your help. Or, hey, it's, I've had a hard day. I deserve to pick what we're going to eat tonight. And so on. See, here is selfishness at work where we have this me first attitude. And this is the challenge of pride. And so one of the things that we are actually called to, that if, we, if we're going to admit our sinfulness, if we're going to admit our selfishness, this is where we die to ourselves. Jesus says, pick up your cross and follow me. That's what he said to his disciples. That there is, in fact, a cost to following Jesus Christ. So that when Jesus says, I want you to be my disciple, this is what Bonhoeffer tells us, that Jesus is actually calling you to come and die. That if you follow Jesus Christ, you are going to die to yourself. And so how we combat 
and, and fight this challenge of pride, according to Paul here, is the example of Jesus Christ. Where we actually lift our eyes off of ourselves and put them on Jesus. That here is Jesus. He's the one who deserves all praise, all glory, all our worship. Why? From this passage, that he humbled himself, and because he humbled himself, God exalted him to the point that every tongue will confess and every knee should bow that Jesus Christ is Lord. That Jesus is worthy of your worship and your praise because he became small. That Jesus is beautiful because he humbled himself to the point of death upon the cross. And so Jesus became small. He died the death that you deserve. He died upon the cross the death that I should have died. That Jesus faced God's judgment for my sins, for your sins. And after he died upon the cross, he's cast aside into into another man's tomb. Here's the picture that we have, that the creator of the universe is buried in the ground. That the creator of the universe, who became creation himself, is dead and buried in the ground. So our confession calls this the humiliation of God the Son. That Jesus took the lowest place, that he humbled himself, that he became small. But why did he do that? Why did he do that? There's a few reasons. First off, it's done to him that the Jewish religious leaders, the Pharisees, including myself and you, we all humiliated him. Because sometimes humility feels like humiliation, or it could be mistaken as such. Because that's when people are putting us down. People are humiliating us. And this is what's done to Jesus, that Jesus is humiliated by the sin of this world. So that's the first reason. The second reason is that this is something that Jesus actually picked up. He did this himself, and he gladly did so. He became small. So for you, when, G- when Pilate was accusing him, here's Jesus. He did not explain himself. He just stood there. He never said a mumbling word. When he goes to the cross, he forgave us of our sins. In fact, Jesus, we learn about his humility very clearly from the Gospel of John. At the very end, we read that the vast majority of his life, his miracles, are not even written down. That the majority of Jesus' life is actually untold so that we would actually have life. That tells us a picture of his humility. He did all of this for you. It is for the joy that was set before him. And so Paul Miller, Paul Miller writes this in his book, Love Walked Among Us, that Jesus humbled himself, that he had to go low in order to love, that here's love and humility, and they are inseparable from one another. And so the wonderful news to us is that here is Jesus Christ. He gave us the Holy Spirit. And so when we consider what Jesus has done for us, how we became small, we are actually empowered and encouraged to do the same. We are empowered and encouraged to demonstrate humility in our own life. That is the gift that Christ gives to us. That's what the work of the Holy Spirit does for us. That if we are participating in the Spirit, we demonstrate our own humility. So how do we do that? How do we do that? 
How do we become small? And so there are a few specific ways that we can be small. And the first is, let's acknowledge the truth about ourselves, that we are sinners, that we are proud, that we have egos. And so this is why Paul commands us, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. So this is the first thing. Well, let's acknowledge the fact that we are sinners. And so recall where Paul starts this book of Philippians, that this is a book that he is actually uh, seeking to foster unity within the church, that we would be one and that the church family would be one and united to one another, that we cultivate this unity in our family life by being humble, where we confess our sins to one another, where we own our sins, where we recognize the ways that we create gaps in our relationships. So this is the first way. Like, let's be honest about ourselves and confess our sins. The second thing to do is that we need to lean into one another. That this book of Philippians is not written to just one individual Christian. This book is written, chapter 1, verse 1, to all the saints in Jesus Christ who are in Philippi, with with the overseers and deacons. That this is a book that's written to a church body. Church plural, you all, not you individuals. And so this is a church that's going through hard times. And, and he, Paul is saying, lean into one another. Lean into one another. Engage. Do not withdraw from one another. That when I am absent, practice these things. So that when we lean in this way, we experience joy and encouragement and love and sympathy. And we show that we are participating in step with the Spirit. Thirdly, still recognizing that humility is hard, that when you, reckon, when you disagree with someone, when you experience conflict, look at verse 3. In humility, count others more significant as yourselves. That when you are in conflict and experience disagreements with one another, think the best about the other person. Don't think the worst. Don't assume the worst. Think the best. And here's the truth about what Jesus Christ. Jesus knows everything about us. He knows us at our worst. 